Hi, I am Agustin Forzani and I'm a fellow at the Mercatus Center and today I'm going to give a brief overview of a particular branch within economics called public choice theory. This overview will then serve as an introduction to my conversation with Professor Rosalino Candela from George Mason University about this topic. Public choice basically applies the theories and methods of economics to the analysis of political behavior, an area that was once ex exclusive of political scientists and sociologists. By applying these methods, public choice analyzes the different ways of organizing collective decision-making. In doing so, it tries to compare the outcomes of decisions made in market settings to the outcomes of decisions made in political settings. Many people, when there is a problem, often automatically say, government ought to do something about that. This response implicitly has a specific assumption of what the government is and what motivates the government in its decision. Basically, this way of thinking about policy issues implies a benevolent despot conception of government. Public choice considers that, that this idea is highly misleading. According to public choice economists, The government is not an individual agent that enacts policies without constraints. Instead, in democratic systems, the government is subject to elections. The government should enact policies that appeal to the electorate to maximize the chances of getting vote. In a sense, public choice economists want to put the democratic process at the center of stage and analyze it. They don't ask what policy should be applied to such or such problem, but rather what policy is likely to emerge in real-world democratic processes. But there is another issue with that automatic response which implies that government ought to do something about a particular problem. The consideration of government as a quote, benevolent despot is also problematic. When it comes to political agents, it is a mistake to think that they are motivated by the desire of greater public good. There is no reason to think that they are motivated by different purposes as people in market processes, namely self-interest. In fact, what political candidates want is to be elected and to gain more political power. The logic of public choice is that government is a complex social machine inhabited by people who are more or less the same as everyone else. As James Buchanan, one of the leading figures of public choice, famously put it, Public choice is politics without romance. In other words, public choice examines politics realistically and not romantically. So what does it mean to analyze political institutions through the lenses of public choice? Let's consider three examples. First, voting or elections in general. Public choice developed the idea that voting is irrational or that it doesn't make sense from a cost-benefit cost analysis. Since the probability of an individual determining the outcome of an election is infinitesimal, the benefits of voting almost always outweigh the costs. Furthermore, public choice also advanced the idea that people are rationally ignorant when it comes to choosing political candidates. This is because the cost of gathering information about a certain nominee are far higher than the benefits that one can derive from choosing the correct one. These are intrinsic problems of elections that have to be seriously taken into account when examining the utility of elections. Second, legislative bodies. Since congresses are constituted by representatives that are geographically based, 
they have strong incentives to support programs that benefit their particular voters in their states at the expense of the rest of the states. Moreover, the logic of collective action reinforces this problem. Small, homogeneous groups are more effective in implementing political pressure than larger groups whose interests are more diffuse. So when there is a problem, one must be aware that the solution proposed by Congress will suffer from these issues. Third, bureaucracies. Congress often delegates responsibilities in various departments and agencies staffed by bureaucrats who secure their positions by appointment rather than by a democratic election. These agencies have a strong incentive to maximize their budget so that they have more administrative discretion, greater prestige, and more opportunities for promotion. Again, how these bureaucracies operate should be considered beforehand if one thinks that a problem should be solved by the, by the government. Now, now, one might argue that public choice economies are against democracy. But that misses the point entirely. Public choice economists are not against democracy, but are against the consideration of democracy as a sacred method. By using economic tools, it is possible to understand how democracy actually operates, to appreciate, to appreciate what it can and it cannot do. Public choice economists, in a sense, follow Winston Churchill's premise. Quote, democracy is the worst system of government, except for all the rest. End quote. This is important so that we do not require from democ the democracy more than what it can achieve. If we do that, it can make people disenfranchised with democracy and lead to, to worse alternatives like authoritarianism. Or it can lead to government overload, making it do more than what it actually can do, including things that can be done better without the government getting involved. To conclude, what are the main lessons of public choice? The first key lesson is that changing the, the identities of people who hold public office will not produce major changes, changes in policy outcomes. Following the Madisonian perspective, public choice recognizes that people are not angels and focuses on the importance of the appropriate institutional rules under which people could pursue their own objectives. The second key lesson, institutional problems require institutional solutions. Public choice suggests that the attention should be placed in establishing the proper domains of private and collective choice, that it is not desirable to, to use the same voting rule for all collective decisions, and that the public interest can be best protected by making collective choices at the lowest feasible level of political authority. Now, after this introduction to public choice, I'm going to turn to a conversation of this particular branch of economics with Professor Rosalino Candela, in which we are going to talk about the origins and development of public choice, some of its leading figures, some potential criticism, and how to apply public choice theory to real-world problems. Okay, today is Monday, May 3rd, 2021, and I have the pleasure to have a, as a guest, Dr. Rosalino Candela. Professor Candela is a senior research fellow and a program director of academic and student programs, as well as a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek program for advanced study in philosophy, politics, and economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. 
He received his PhD in economics at Charles Mason University, and he is the author of an extensive list of academic journals, mainly on national economics, property rights economics, and public choice. And besides all of that, um, he's a former professor of mine, and I have to say, one of the best professors I, I have ever had. Uh, professor Gandela, thank you so much for taking time for this interview. Uh, this, that introduction is, is, is too warm. You're already setting me up for failure. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, let's get right into it. Um, I would like to start this conversation about public choice theory with the very origins of, of this school of thought. Um, does public choice theory have a specific um, starting point, actually, or from where does this idea of applying, you know, the economic way of thinking to politics um, come from in, in the first place? So in order to answer that question, let me begin, let's just first of all define our terms, what we mean by public choice. And let's discuss, first of all, some common interpretations of what public choice means. Uh, public choice in, in the the broadest sense of the term refers to the economics of non-market decision-making, right? Now, that definition presupposes that the origins of public choice date all the way back to, for example, um, the beginnings of economics as well, in which because the beginnings of economics with Adam Smith and David Hume, uh, the distinctions between economics, political science, law, sociology uh, were quite uh, close and overlapped quite extensively. So the, the intersection between all these disciplines in some sense um, was quite um, extensive. That being said though, all right, the first example, not the first example historically, but one of the uh, examples that you could find public choice going back to classical political economists is an article uh, or paper written by David Hume. Uh, I believe it's dated 1777, The Independency of Parliament, in which he states that the political maxim uh, by which we have to evaluate uh, the interactions of political officials, the behavior of political officials, is to assume that they're all names, right? That they're these self-interested opportunistic individuals. Now, there are also other forerunners of this notion of public choice as well, right? You could find this in Wilfredo Paredo, or you can also find right, public choice analysis uh, in Joseph Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, which was published in 1942, right? Um, there are also some other precursors to public choice analysis. Um, one of them being a contemporary of Buchanan's, Anthony Downs, who wrote a book in 1957 uh, called An Economic Theory of Democracy. In fact, the term rational ignorance itself was coined there. So in many ways, right, public choice itself has, is inextricably tied up with the evolution of economics. So that being said, when we think of public choice today, what makes it distinct? Why was it so important? Uh, in particular, Buchanan and Tulloch, why were, the, why were they such crucial figures in the formation of public choice? And I think in order to understand that, you have to have in the backdrop the context within which, the intellectual context within which uh, Buchanan and Tulloch 
were beginning their careers. Now, by the 19, by the mid 20th century, there had been a, a substitution, you might say, in the presumptions in economic analysis, one in which the prevailing presumption is that markets are prone to failure, right? So for example, if we take the model of perfect competition, right, as an ideal and compare that to real world markets, right? The notion that, for example, that in markets, there's no, no monopoly power, right? Every individual is a price taker. There's perfect information, right? Um, and so on and so forth. Comparing this to the real world, economists would conclude that there are these failures associated with externalities, monopoly power, asymmetric information, the provision of public goods, and so on and so forth. So the preconceived notion in the DNA of economists at the time, the mainstream of, of economic thinking, was that economists proffered advice to government officials who were regarded as benevolent and were maximizing a preconceived social welfare function. That is, there is this notion that there's a preconceived good that political officials are supposed to deliver to individuals and that they are perfectly benevolent in doing so. So that being said, with this background in mind, there are many common interpretations of public choice analysis, which I think are not wrong, but I think are at best incomplete and at worst, a gross misunderstanding. Um, let me give an example to illustrate my point. So my first introduction into uh, public choice, the study of public choice was, in my, was not as an economics major, it was as a uh, philosophy major. Uh, one of the first books I had read of James Buchanan, right, one of the founders of public choice, uh, was his book, uh, The Limits of Liberty. Uh, I had read also Calculus of Consent, uh, not while I was undergraduate, but uh, at, around the time I was pursuing my MA at Fordham University, my MA in, in economics and political economy. Um, I say that for a particular reason which is um, one of the things that I had quote unquote learned at Fordham University was that public choice analysis was at best a cynical science, that it takes the approach that we have to be cynical about public officials, right? Given the fact that they're self-interested. But again, this goes back to the notion that Hume said we must structure or we, we must regard and take as given this political maxim that government officials act as knaves, right? So that's nothing, that's not new. What was new, what was that, that Buchanan brought to the table was this notion that politics was an exchange process, right? This notion that politics as an exchange process. Now, why is that important? What do all the other figures that I've just talked about have in common that makes Buchanan distinct, and Tulloch for that matter, right? His co-author on their 1960 book, two book, The Calculus of Consent. If you go back to, for example, Hume, 
or Pareto or even Schumpeter. There's no hope in their analysis, right? So one of Buchanan's main, uh, his, his, his mentor with, under whom he had studied for his PhD at the University of Chicago was Frank Knight. And both Buchanan and, and other students of Knight, for example, George Stigler, uh, have recalled that Knight saying that, for example, that to call a situation hopeless is to call it ideal. Now, this notion fits quite well, not night, but this, this, this tape statement can be interpreted in two ways. The first way it could be interpreted is, well, we have the ideal of perfect competition in markets, right? Now, in the, the ideal of perfect competition, there are no market failures, but there's also no profit opportunities. Now, if you look out in the world, as I said, and we compare it to the ideal perfect competition, right, markets are in failure. But the notion that markets are in failure implies that there, what is required in order to correct the market is this deus ex machina, right? To eliminate monop monopoly power, right? For example, through antitrust laws, or for example, the elimination of externalities, for example, through taxes, in the case of negative externalities, or, or subsidies in the, in the form of positive externalities, asymmetric information, for example, mandating laws to provide information, so on and so forth. Now, but there's another way to interpret what Knight was saying. And I think this is the essence of what Buchanan is absorbed from night, which is, yes, the world is non-ideal, therefore there's hope. But the hope resides in changing the rules of the game, right? So what you can't, right, it's not enough to say that, for example, public choice economists, such as Buchanan and Tulloch, argued, yes, there are market failures, but there also are government failures. Yeah. Right in, in correcting for government failures, for example, associated with budget deficits, right, with rent seeking, with, for example, short sightedness amongst politicians. That's all true. But again, I don't think that 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 is a complete understanding of what public choice and particularly the um, subfield within public choice is all about one with with which Buchanan and Tulloch are most identified with, which is constitutional political economy. That is, right, if we want to change, right, market processes in order to, right, if we want to correct for market failures, right, that implies that we have to change the rules of the game to make markets, right, work more efficiently. Or if, for example, there are problems in politics, we can't change the actors within the game. We have to change the rules which structure the incentives within which political officials act, right? So for example, I'm sure that you're a fan of, right, of soccer, right? Yeah. Now imagine, for example, you're playing soccer, right? Indeed, if we change the players 
are are they going to are we going to expect a different outcome? In other words, if I, for example, I know how to play, I play baseball, right? Or I've played basketball. Or, but if you put me in the context of the rules of soccer, right? Those rules don't mean anything. Or my behavior, my talent, in order to survive in that context, I have to play by the rules of the game, right? So if there is, for example, problems associated with government, right? inefficiencies associated with government, right? what we have to do to correct for that is to change the rules of the game. Yeah. So it's this notion of politics of exchange that individuals can engage in solving their collective action problems through mutual agreement. That's very, very important. But more importantly, this notion of exchange implies something different, is that collective action problems are not technological problems. They're not as if that there's a public good that exists out there and independent of the preferences of individuals. And that benevolent government officials exist to implement that preconceived good. What Buchanan argued is that what individuals, the collective action, right? The collective action problems, the collective goals that individuals want to achieve is a byproduct of their agreement. Right? So the, the, the benchmark, right? The benchmark, the standard for Buchanan to achieve mutually beneficial agreements collectively among individuals was unanimity. Right. In order to eliminate problems associated with externalities in politics. Yeah. Um, so let me um, after that uh, ex explanation of, of the um, the main contributions of, of uh, Buchanan, you, you said you know um, politics as an exchange. Let me play. They will advocate here, so we, we can you know broaden the perspective, uh, the the, the, the uh, understand better public choice. Um, so you know public choice applies um, the economic economics tools to the political setting, as you said, uh, uh, politics as an exchange. Um, but one can argue, well, you know, politics is not the same as markets because, for example, in a market there is an exchange. And that, that implies you have a, 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 a trans, transfers of property rights from one person to another. And that also implies that you have an enforcement of uh, uh, some rules that you have to uh, comply with. You, you already talked about that. And an enforcement of those rules. Um, in other words, there, there are rules and, and an enforcement of them. But in the quote, political market, um, you, there isn't actually a, an exchange of property rights and an enforcement of those rules. For example, um, when a politician, uh, you know, it makes a, a promise before uh, an election, um, then you cannot sue a politician because it, it, it didn't deliver the, 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 the promise. Or, or for example, when interest groups lobby, you know, the legislators in an exchange for a, an, a specific policy, um, the congressman or congresswoman may or may not comply then. Uh, and the, there is again, uh, no enforcement for, for them. So how can you respond to that, that criticism? 
I think that criticism illustrates the, why the importance of constitutional constraints are so important. Because before we even have to decide what's on the table for political decision-making, we have to first understand what's, what's not on the table for political decision-making, right? So the, re, right, the very reason for constitutions is not to enable political decision-making per se, it's to understand what is off the table, right? For example, for political decision makers. Let me give an example to illustrate my point. And it's a ridiculous question, but it'll illustrate the point I'm trying to make, right? Why do we not right, put murder up for a vote, right? Now, that's a ridiculous question. I'm like, that, that's, that's silly. Why would we ever put it up for a vote? For example, if, if someone has done something wrong to another individual, right, do we put that up for a vote? Right. No, that's, that, right, that's completely off the table in terms of what's, what's left to political decision-making. Right. That decision is made in the political sphere, but it's made through, right, through, the, through the judicial process. Right. Now, that's one that's one point that you're, that's one way to address that point. But another way to address that point is that is precisely the reason why subsidiarity is so important. The notion that there are competing and overlapping jurisdictions in order for, right, it, such that, for example, uh, citizens don't just vote, right, at the ballot, but they also vote with their feet. Right. So there's this distinction by Albert Hirschman, right, between voice and exit. An exit is just as important as, as your voice. Right. Let me give an, an example to illustrate this point. Um, one of my colleagues at the Mercatus Center, uh, Dr. Jamie Lamke, has written a fantastic paper called Interjurisdictional Competition and Women's Property Acts. Now, if you read the paper, at the beginning of the 19th century, women were completely dis disenfranchised from the political process, right? And as married women, they did not have property rights, right? Any, any property rights that they had in terms of assets were forfeited to their husbands. Now, here's a note, here's a, uh, where my point about this notion of imperfection is very, is very important. Because there are two ways we could think about either markets or, prof or political processes being imperfect. One is the notion that it's flawed compared to an ideal or suboptimal. But if we look at the origins of the word imperfect, right, um, the etymological origins from Latin, the word is more akin to the idea of in incompleteness, right? That there's, there's a process that's not yet complete. Now, indeed, the U.S. Constitution was very imperfect, but not flawed compared to an ideal. It's that it was incomplete compared to the ideal. That is of the rule of law. That is individuals being held equally before the law. But how was that ideal realized? It was realized through political competition due to subsidiarity between competition between states. Right? Women did not have the right to vote. So how could they vote 
for political franchisement and their rights by voting with their feet. Because the Western territories of the United States at the, in the early 19th century, in order to qualify for statehood, needed a requisite level of population. How were they able to achieve that, right? By attracting voters. How'd they attract those voters? Hey, listen, if you settled in, in my state, you will have property rights, right? So this is constitutional making, constitution making, not from the top down, from the bottom up. Before there was ever universal enfranchisement through, by constitutional amendment in the, in the United States, uh, the Western states, right, had granted universal suffrage to women, right? So indeed there are political markets and they are looser compared to, for example, a market in which there's a residual claimant, right? For example, someone who's accountable and responsive to profit and loss signals. Indeed, this response is correct. In, in political markets, that, right, that tightness between one's actions and the consequences of one act, one's actions right, is more disconnected. Right? But it's more of a, but what I would say from a public choice standpoint is that it's more of a difference in degree, not in kind. That is, we can create this, this notion of residual claimancy. We can create this notion of, of, of accountability, not only through voice at the vote, but also subsidiarity, allowing competition, interjurisdictional competition, right? Which restricts, right? Which, which binds a national government, right? From overreaching its constitutional prerogatives. Um, I would, I would like to switch to, you know, talk about the actual application of public choice theory to real world problems. So you already talked a little bit, but, um, so one of the things that I enjoyed the most about your, your classes, and I always remember is the way you explain the idea developed in public choice uh, about rent seeking, because there is a particular rent-seeking activity in the American economy that actually affects you quite a bit. Um, can you bring that explanation from your classes to this conversation? Sure. Uh, um, I think I know what you're getting at, but let me first begin by defining because uh, rent-seeking is not a new, if, if, if you look at the history of economic thought, right? rent-seeking itself is not a new concept per se, right? Um, the notion of rent-seeking, right? The notion of, of a rent-seeking economy was inextric inextricably tied up with Adam Smith's critique of mercantilism. The notion that, for example, what he was critiquing was not a market economy. What he was critiquing was government provision of monopoly privileges to special interest groups. Right. So the idea of rent seeking itself is just as old as economics. Uh, you will if you will also find this notion of rent seeking in Bastiat's uh, famous petition to the candlestick maker, which I highly recommend anyone read. Right. Because what the genius of, of Bastiat was to illustrate economic as well as political lessons through satire. Right. 
In that account, what Bastiat is illustrating are petition makers. What they're doing is they're rent seeking for protection from air from unfair foreign competition. That is the sun, right? In order to illustrate the welfare costs, the inefficiencies associated with rent seeking, right? So, like the definition of public choice, this is not something new, but what why what what was new about what Tulloch brought to the table with regards to uh, rent seeking? First of all, let me say that the term rent seeking itself, right? The, the modern idea of rent seeking was developed by Gordon Tulloch in his 1967 paper, right? The welfare cost of monopoly tariffs and theft. But the term itself was coined by another economist, uh, Ann Kruger, who wrote a 1974 article in the American Economic Review called The Political Economy of the Rent-Seeking Society. And the definition, the broad definition of, of rent-seeking, as Tulloch defines it, is the expenditure of time and resources, time, resources, and effort to either capture existing wealth or avert transfers of existing wealth. Now, why was this concept important as Buchanan developed, excuse me, as Tulloch developed it? At the time, right, as I had said, in the 1950s and 1960s, there was the notion, for example, that a benevolent government officials could benevolently, right, eliminate sources of monopoly power, right, through government intervention, whether it be through antitrust laws, regulations, taxes, so on and so forth. Uh, but there was an economist at the University of Chicago named Arnold Harberger who had tested the idea of the notion of, or the cost of, the welfare cost of monopoly in markets today. And he, est he estimated it to be very, very small, right? Very, very small, which is important because what Harburg was, was trying to illustrate is that monopoly power was not in per, as, uh, as pervasive as some market failure theorists might argue in the US economy. But what Tulloch was arguing is that you're right, like Bastiat, there's the seen and there's the unseen. Right? The good economist not only sees the effects of a particular policy, but also the unseen effects. And what Tulloch was trying to get us to think about are the unseen costs of rent seeking due to, for example, um, special interest groups lobbying for special privileges, either in the form of tariffs, taxes, regulations, so on and so forth. So let me give the example because you're setting me up for this. And it ties into the point that I had mentioned about Anthony Downs and rational ignorance. Um, I love Fanta. It's my favorite soft drink, like by far. It's, it's just, it's, it's a thin slice of heaven for me. I, I absolutely love it. But it completely, I, there are, Augustine, there are much bigger problems in the world than the one I'm talking about. But for me, it's very personal. The fact that I can't get good Fanta in the United States, right? I either have to go to Europe or get the imported version from Mexico. 
Now, why do I, right? Why does that happen? Well, in the US, the price of the domestic price of sugar is roughly one and a half to two times higher than it is on the world market. Now, why is this the case? Right? One of the, right, ever since the early 1980s, there have been tariffs in force in the United States, right, which are taxes on imports of foreign sugar. This was one, right? This is one of the lobbies that uh, Ronald Reagan had catered to in his ploy for election, right, in 1981. So ever since then, under Republican and Democratic administrations, we have had protection for, among other types of protection, we've had protection on sugar. Now, because of this, Right. Because the price of sugar in the United States is higher, right? There's the, the, a substitute, right? There's a greater demand, or it's relatively uh, less costly to substitute corn syrup for sugar to sweeten soft drinks. For example, Coca Cola, right? Which is okay, but Fanta? No, forget about it. It doesn't have that. Oh my goodness. It has that golden, you've seen it. It has that, that golden orange. It's like glowing, like, oh. It's like, it's just like something from heaven, but it's got that ugly orange color in the United States. I, I can't, I, I can't explain it. Now, back to the point I'm trying to make here is that what are the seeing costs, right? The seeing costs are number one, Americans pay a bit more for sugar every year, right? When they buy, for example, Domino sugar in, in a bag, right? For their coffee in the morning or to bake cakes, so on and so forth. Um, we also see, for example, that there is this other cost, which is, which is a huge psychic cost for me. I can't enjoy good Fanta, right? That's another scene cost. Now you might ask yourself, right? If this is making me so angry and I'm sure it makes other people as, ang as angry as I am, right? And like I said, this is just one small policy in the grand scheme of things it's not that big of a deal, right? And yet, why don't I do anything about it, right? If you ask me how much I spend on sugar each year, I have no idea. I don't know how much, moreover, I don't know how much more I pay in sugar each year because of the tariffs. Now, if I sat down and calculated it, could I do that? Yeah, I could figure it out, but why don't I do it, right? I'm rationally ignorant, as Anthony Downs would say. Given the cost of gathering that information relative to the benefit, I choose to remain ignorant. I'm not stupid, right? I'm aware of this policy, but I don't do anything about it, right? Furthermore, what would be the costs of me engaging in this activity, right? For example, writing my congressman or woman to do so, right? What effect would it have? It would have very, very little effect. Why? This is a concentrated, right? right? This is a dispersed cost on me, but a concentrated benefit to the domestic sugar producers who benefit from this, right? Given it's a dispersed cost, right? I choose to remain rationally ignorant. So this is another lesson of public choice analysis before I get back to rent seeking in a moment.
let me just digress, is that the logic of political processes is to concentrate benefits on well-organized and well-informed special interest groups and to disperse the costs on the masses of the ill-informed population. That's the inverse of markets, the, right? A market process concentrates costs on a particular decision maker. For example, an entrepreneur assuming risk when they're putting an invention or a new product out in market. But the benefits, right? right? So the costs are concentrated, but the benefits are dispersed throughout the population, right? Now, I've talked all about the costs that are seen from the rent-seeking activity that's tied to lobbying for tariffs on imported sugar. What are the unseen costs? Well, do, right, did, do political officials just hand out tariffs randomly to people? No. Do they hand out regulations randomly to people? No. Right. Like Buchanan said, politics is an exchange process. Like any exchange, the trading partners have to discover each other. Discovery entails costs. So let's assume that you are the political official and you have the discretion, right? You're an elected official returning for re-election. Right? I go to you, Agustin. Let's say I'm a beet farmer, right? How are you going to vote on the sugar bill, on the farm bill when it comes up? Well, if you invite me to a, you know, a dinner somewhere, um, we can discuss that and yeah, I might vote for. Yeah, right. I, right. I get, I get lobbyists. I get very intelligent people to ensure that the policies that are favorable to preserving my particular privilege remain intact. Now, you might say, well, that's not a cost. That's just a transfer. I'm paying lawyers, I'm paying lobbyists, I'm paying all these individuals to speak on my behalf. But what is the hidden cost? Yeah, the, Those, the, that go ahead. could have been used in another, in another, another yes. produ producing another thing, yeah. Not only my efforts, but the efforts of the individuals acting on my behalf have alternative uses. Their entrepreneurial talent could have been allocated towards producing goods and services and creating wealth that consumers want. But what happens to that, right? What happens to that wealth? What happens to that cost or that opportunity? It's gone forever. Yeah. This is another important contribution to Buchanan, by Buchanan and, and in public choice, is that costs are not right, objective and about past behavior. Costs are subjective and are always about future decision-making, right? I can choose to lobby or not to lobby, right? If I choose not to lobby, I will have to allocate resources by delivering goods and services to individuals in such a way by offering a higher quality and lower price product, right? But if I just choose to engage in rent-seeking, the cost is the opportunity of having engaged in that activity. What could have been that activity? We don't know. It's gone forever. That opportunity is gone after I've made that choice. That's the unseen cost of rent seeking. Yeah. Um, 
now that you you uh, mentioned you know the the um your uh problem with the sugar tariffs um in a way to say thank you for for your help with this with this project i i brought you some fanta i have a can for the, those of you listening i have a can a kind of fanta here from my country from argentina um i have a friend that works in the coca-cola factory there and he told me yeah 100 sure it's made with uh, real sugar we don't use uh, corn uh, syrup so I'm gonna ship Thank it to, you. Uh, uh, to to your to your home uh, after this this conversation. Uh, so, um, I I would like to close the, the conversation with a, a a brief conclusion on why uh, public choice is important. Um, you know, today even more with the experience of, of the pandemic uh, in an emergency, it seems justified. You know that for some people or even for economists um, that government should take some action, you know, in, in an emergency. Um, but at least to me, there is scarcely anyone that stops and asks uh, what the government can actually do in, in such an emergency. Uh, so this to me, in my opinion, is, is saying, you know, there, there is plenty of work for the public choice economists to do, uh, to analyze in detail, you know, the, the, the operation of government and, and even more in an emergency in an emergency and explain it and explain how, how it works. So do you share that view, uh, that um, idea? I do share it, but let me frame it in the following way, right? Uh, I'll talk about COVID-19 and the pandemic and, um, and the responses to the pandemic, but also tie back to the other point that you had our discussion about rent seeking. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the pandemic because I think it illustrates an important point, which is the distinction between rules and expediency. Now, during times of crises, right, it's very tempting to argue, well, given these, these unusual and abnormal times, right, constitutional constraints don't apply. They are required, right? We, we can, we can violate constitutional constraints in order to meet particular objectives, right? Associated with the pandemic, right? So we take expedient measures to eliminate, right? COVID-19. Now, I don't disagree that this is an unusual situation and that we should take action and, and governments should take action to do so. I, I know that sounds a little weird what I'm about to say, but there are two different types of action. There's active action, and there's passive action. Now, what do I mean by that? Right. I'm sure, Augustine, you've read the First Amendment of the Constitution. Right. The First Amendment of the Constitution states that Congress should not infringe on freedom of speech, right? the right of individuals to address grievances, and the right to peaceably assemble. Now, what I would argue is that what we saw especially in March of last year in the US, is that there were short, pervasive shortages in goods and services, right? People running for toilet paper, hand sanitizers, masks, so on and so forth. Now, why was that, not, why was that occurring? It was occurring because there are laws in place against price gouging, right? That for example, states in the United States 
can't won't allow, for example, uh, rapid increases in the prices of consumer goods for fear, right? Or businesses won't allow that to happen for fear of government intervention or government punishment based on price gouging, right? That you are exercising monopoly power or taking advantage of consumers by raising the price too high. Now, what I would say is that's actually a violation of the First Amendment, which is, and now if you ask most Americans, would they say that freedom of speech is a right that should not be infringed? They would probably all raise their hand. But in terms of price gouging, what would they say? I would bet that a good number of them would be in agreement. Now, in agreement with that. Now, why are those two statements in contradiction to each other? Right. Hayek told us, right? F.A. Hayek wrote an article in 1945 called The Use of Knowledge in Society. And what he taught us was that prices are a telecommunication mechanism. They're an impersonal form of speech. Now, the only way that prices can be communicated is if right the scarcity of goods and services can be communicated if prices are allowed to rise rapidly, right? Now you might say, well, aren't you taking advantage of grandma in, in, in the fact that she has to pay double the price on toilet paper? Well, what is the response to higher prices, right? Competitive entry for supplies of toilet paper and individuals cutting back on the amount of toilet paper, right? For example, right, instead of using toilet paper to clean my ears, now that that price is doubled, I'm gonna stop doing that and use it for more essential purpose. So the price mechanism, right, delivers this form of communication, but the price mechanism only works if there are constraints against the ability, right, against the infringement on the exchange of property rights. That information is only communicated if people buy and sell goods and services. So what I would argue is that it's precisely in times of crisis and pandemic that constitutional constraints are all the more important because they deliver the information necessary to get us out of it as quickly as possible, right? But as so long as, right? So imagine, for example, having the, a price control in the form of price gouging, right? What, what is the analogy of having that? That's like me, if I'm speaking right now, and right, you can't speak. It's like cutting the telephone cord. Imagine a telephone cord on this phone, right? In the middle of an emergency call, right? The market is saying, we need more hand, hand sanitizers. We need more toilet paper, right? We need more vaccines, right? But without prices being allowed to rise, that information won't be communicated to redirect, for example, producers of paper towels to toilet paper, right? Or producers of soap to hand sanitizers. Right? But only if- right? And the demand to get back. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. Yeah, so I, I wanted to, to close with, with, with that because um, this is, I think, particularly relevant for, for both current and, and future economies in, in my, my country, I would say to take you know, public choice 
into account seriously. Um, you know, through the period here at, at, at Mason, um, one of Let the- me say something about, may, may I say something about that? Because I think it's all the more important, Augustine. Oh, sure. This is, this is another, this is a second lesson that, I, I mean, there are many lessons that we could take away from public choice, but the fact that you're from Argentina is so important here, right? Uh, for the viewers who are going to be seeing this, I don't think most people realize that at the turn of the 20th century, right? Argentina was the fourth ranking economic power in the world. It was one of the richest countries in the world. How was it able to become so wealthy? Based on, the, right? It is indeed the case that they have some of the richest farmland in the world and therefore the best stakes. I think that's a, uncon, an uncontroversial statement, right? Because of the Pampas in Argentina. But what, they, what, what occurred in Argentina was largely free trade and immigration that allowed a huge influx of, on, of entrepreneurial talent, right? That allowed individuals to accumulate wealth and specialize, right? But now, right, what unfortunately the tragedy in, in, in Argentina is that it's become a basket case, economically speaking, yeah. precisely because of rent seeking, right? And government regulations. Yeah, but this illustrates, so yeah, that that was basically what what I was going to say. You know, the, there is I learned here at Mason that my country requires a major institutional change, a, a complete overhaul, and and public choice actually is the perfect school of thought to 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 do that to to because it focuses you know in to in the in the changing the rules of the game so that people can cooperate with each other and, and, and live peacefully together uh, in a free society. So it, it's, it's basically what we have to, to study as, as economists, to, to study how to change, how to teach uh, people to change their rules of the game um, uh, to live peacefully together. Um, and I wanted to, to close with, um, uh, a, a quote from, from Buchanan in, in his uh, novel uh, Price's speech, uh, because I think that it's perf perfectly um, ex explained what I, what I was saying. So he said, quote, the task for the political economist is to assist individuals as citizens who control their own social order in their continuing search for those rules of the political game that will best serve their purposes, whatever this might be. So, end quote. So, uh, you know, I think um, this is the task of, of, of economies. Uh, uh, it's really important to concentrate efforts on that. And uh, I know that it's a gigantic job and uh, responsibility, but as you said before, uh, Buchanan also said, you know, to say a situation is ideal is to say it is hopeless. The world is not, is not ideal, therefore there is hope. To, so. I think there is place for a solution. We have to just find out. You have to find it. Yeah. So, Professor Candela, thank you so much again for, for this time. Um, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity.